Good evening, friends. Franz Weinschenk here to welcome you to another edition of Valley Writers Read. Although our author tonight has lived here in the Valley for just about all of his adult life, like so many of us, he was actually born in a different country, and that's what tonight's story is all about. The writer I'm talking about is John Walk, and he's going to be reading a story of his entitled Escaping Karachi. Here's John. Escaping Karachi, a novel excerpt. Dudley and Vera Blagden should never have left New Delhi in 47, where they'd met, married, given birth to two sons, aborted others unbeknownst to my father, and conceived me. I only survived because I was born a thousand miles away in another country. Yes, I know, by saying so I'm questioning my life. If they hadn't boarded that train for Karachi... Oh, how easily I can rattle that off now, as if it were just some casual Sunday jaunt in the country. But if they hadn't boarded that train, I wouldn't be here to speak of it today. Superstition said a woman should never conceive in one country and give birth in another, or her child would be damned with never knowing his place in the world. If my mother had had her way, we would never have left. But she was not superstitious. She chose superstitions to suit her purpose. This was just one she'd never heard of. No, we would never have left, but for other reasons of hers that I'm only now coming to grips with. And I wouldn't be here struggling with my anxiety. She fought the move, though it became the escape she was seeking, and I the price she had to pay, neither of which she could have foreseen. I straddled two worlds trying to bind them together in my imagination, a struggle that still lives with me today. By leaving Delhi, my survival was assured, and it was put at risk. My prospects were either a brief life, dying innocent, or a long one filled with anxiety. Delhi in '47 meant partition, the British fleeing India after generations of imperial rule, and leaving in their wake a fractured world. I grew up being told that partition had nearly killed me, though now I'm beginning to doubt it. Slicing up India with my life in the balance put more at risk than if I'd been delivered by caesarean. It gave me something in common with Hindus and Muslims, though I was Christian and Anglo-Indian. But forgive me, I'm getting way ahead of myself, so I'll try to start at the beginning the only beginning there can be for me, the first misfortune in my mother's life. It was past midnight when my father woke up spitting blood, she began. I ran from my bed and chased my mother through the kitchen. She was carrying out heavy brass spittoons, emptying them in the gravel. Vera Blagden padded her sweaty palms with the moist, balled-up hanky in her hands and repeated for the one hundredth time, the story of her life in Calcutta right after World War I. He refused to get in the ambulance. Hospitals are for the dead, he said. Whenever she quoted her parents like that, short, direct, unequivocal statements, 
It elevated them in my mind's eye to the level of gods who could battle time and overcome death. But I was mistaken. When the sun rose, a black coffin was crushing a huge slab of ice, she continued. We had no refrigeration in Calcutta in those days. They had to act fast. The ice melted so quickly I thought it was weeping. And as Vera leaned up against the ice to get a good look at him, all that she could recall was the smell of blood, brass, and gravel in the moonlight. That's it, just like that, my last memory of him, she said, snapping her fingers. Derek, are you listening? Rousing me from the trance I always fell into whenever she recited her stories. I was four. My mother said, I'll never remarry. When my uncle ushered us out and said, Eat, Vera, we're burying your father, I didn't even know what he meant, and I threw up my breakfast. Why people serve food at funerals and wakes, I'll never understand. Why can't they fast like Gandhi? Can anyone with any passion for the dead eat at a time like that? That's why I have trouble eating. I lost my appetite and never regained it. And don't ever get me near a slab of ice. Years later, many Karachi evenings were spent visiting our neighbors on the veranda we shared, where a slab of ice would be carefully lowered into the galvanized tin bucket of bottled cheap domestic beer. Hospice, our neighbor, Mrs. Gardner, exclaimed. The slab was wrapped in a gunny sack, out of deference to mother's memories of ice, or so I imagined. I later discovered that the gunny sack was to prolong the life of the ice and conceal the liquor from public view in a Muslim country. But in my mind, it was always out of deference to mother. She told me her stories to keep herself from going mad. She would never have admitted that, yet they drove her to the edge where they kept her precariously balanced. The only place of survival in ours was assured. If she'd slipped off into her maddening abyss, all would have been lost. She said they were meant to keep me alive. I never doubted her, but I only understood years later what I'd sensed deep within me at the time, that we were both right. Her stories had kept both of us alive, though no one else in my family knew that. My father and brothers were like another family that shared our home. They disappeared to work and school most mornings, were often absent, and at times were like strangers. And I tried to banish the thought that in some mysterious way my future lay beyond our four walls with those very strangers. If they had stayed at home, I still knew of no way to express myself to them. I kept my fears hidden. When we moved to Theradar Street in 48, our neighbors had kept to themselves at first. With no one else to talk to, I became Mother's sole companion during the day. She fought to keep me engaged in life, afraid that I was hovering near death through disinterest. A child must hear its mother's voice constantly, she said, her perfect explanation for her ceaseless storytelling. By her standards, I should have been the best-raised child in the world. Her stories were like shards of light, her lighthouse beacons that guided me through those years. You couldn't have picked a worse time to arrive, Derek. Partition nearly killed you. It puzzled me how I was held responsible for my own birth, as if it had been an event much larger than her, 
and in which she'd had no hand in. As if I'd given birth to myself, I could not have known then, nor could I have imagined the raw partition played in my life. She was small, dark, and thin, with a high round forehead and glistening pockmarked skin, and she kept her hair cut short for the heat. She disliked excess hair on people, thought it a sign of filth and disease, another place for lice to multiply. She was some part Bengali, though how much was uncertain, born and raised in Calcutta, and she wore her heart on her sleeve. But she dressed me in loose, long, flowing robes to conceal my razor-thin legs. Watch out for those matchstick legs of yours, Derek. Some day you'll set things on fire with them, she'd laugh, concealing some hidden meaning. The only mirror in the house was the small, water-spotted one that father shaved with each morning. It was the same one that mother employed to help me pluck out her white hairs and keep me in tuck money, while keeping her eternally young in her battle with time. It wasn't until years later when I traveled thousands of miles for an education that it shocked me to see my reflection in short pants in a full-length storefront window for the first time and recognize the truth of her words. That was because the first photos I saw of myself showed me dressed in those loose, long-fitting robes, after which the photo-taking suddenly ceased. What caught my attention was how Mother had cut her face out of the photos. It disturbed me to recognize myself being held up by a decapitated torso in a light cotton frock. She excused that by saying she looked sick and near death herself and that no one deserved to see her in that condition, though those were the very same photos she sent to her sisters who had just migrated to England. She refused to have me driven across Karachi in a horse-drawn gari or rickshaw through Empress Market and Southern Bazaar en route to the Holy Trinity Church to be christened. She was afraid I'd die from the diseases that ran rampant through the bazaars with the massive flight of refugees at partition. She was torn between doing that quickly so that I could be assured a Christian burial or waiting until I was strong enough to withstand the plagues of partition, as she called them. I'm not sure which was greater, her faith in my health or her fear of disease, but she didn't have me christened until I was three. With the loss of both parents and her brother, while she was still a young woman, she was never too cautious about her confinement with me. She remained alert to recognize any abnormality. It was a bad omen to her when she only discovered in her final moments of labor past midnight that she had to climb two flights of stairs to reach the one-room Parsi clinic where she welcomed me into this world. It was downwind from the fish stalls at Empress Market. There would still be hours before dawn when the fishermen would arrive with their catch and the stalls would be open for business. The stench of the fish had been absorbed through the marble slabs for generations, and her nausea was sickening. It was no wonder that I had trouble with fish. It was a nausea that I was inhaling at birth as we desperately began trying to escape from each other. A second-floor berth was also a bad omen, as my first journey in life would be descending downstairs. She paid the Parsi midwife a big tip, and before we left for home, the midwife held me 
high up in her arms and stepped up on a chair. What nonsense is this, my father asked when he walked in. Dudley, a child's first journey of life, predicts whether he rises or falls in life. With everything else going against him, I had to do that. She seized upon my matchstick legs, my oversized head, and my elephant ears as reasons to avoid displaying me in public. But that was just her pretense to conceal her personal embarrassment. I became known in the neighborhood as the Partition Baby. Strangers took a natural curiosity in me. They were uncertain what to expect as they peered into my pram in search of any mark Partition had left. Upon close inspection, my awkward appearance confirmed their suspicions. Mother understood what strangers left unsaid. Who could have been so irresponsible to think only of desires of the flesh and bring a child into the world at a time like that? It was either a reckless act of abandon or one of supreme confidence that a child could survive those conditions, like giving birth during wartime or in prison. My link with Partition took on a life of its own, as if Partition and I had been Siamese twins. That's why I was dressed in those loose long-footing robes, not just to conceal my matchstick legs, but also the creature that was joined to me at the hip. Partition. It was a discovery that I kept to myself. There must have been some truth in what she said about my health. I wet my bed, sucked my thumb, and cracked my ears, and only stopped when I was forced to do so upon leaving home. Your thumb sucking will give you buck teeth, she said, soaking my thumb in cod liver oil and other bitter liquids to break me. Don't crack your ears. They were elephant size when you were born. Are you trying to grow wings to fly away from me? She would strap them back with a strip of cloth wrapped around my head like a turban to flatten them, and she would alternately turn my head while I slept so that I lay on one side of my face and then the other. What she couldn't have known was that I was enlarging my ears to sharpen my hearing and catch everything that was said. I listened for any subtle clue or hidden cadence that would reveal people's thoughts. Though I was already well known for hearing whispers spoken from clear across any crowded room. I suffered from asthma and wheezed every night. She would sit on the side of the bed while light spilt over the thin room partition along with the hushed conversations of my father helping my brothers with their schoolwork. She would massage my tight chest stroke my temples in a circular fashion and pressed down with her thumb and forefinger at the center of my forehead. I came to know her stories better than she did. I tried to correct her whenever she erred. But even when her stories contradicted each other, that only added to their intrigue. No story was ever repeated the same way twice. She would spend an entire evening and night on some tangent and embellish the smallest detail as an excuse to compare the past with the present. And I gradually sensed that deep beneath the surface of life lay a rich tapestry of meanings and significance. Partition. As a child, I heard no other word so frequently. Not a day passed without reference to it, as if it had been some watershed event and the world that had existed before had suddenly come to an abrupt end. Nothing would ever be the same again. Partition, one word without qualifiers, 
unlike the Battle of Britain or the Black Hole of Calcutta, more in common with other one-worded entities such as God and Allah. But partition possessed another meaning that confused me. The one room we lived in was split in two by a meager plywood room divider. This six-foot-high partition beneath the twenty-foot-high ceiling was at best a pretense. It was never meant to keep the noise or light at bay. It was only a suggestion of how we might hope to live some day in the future with separate living and sleeping quarters. What our plywood partition had to do with partition puzzled me. We briefly kept a paying boarder who'd lost an arm in the Burma theater. I pictured the cinema where we went to see American World War II Technicolor movies set in the Pacific, the American troops hitting the beaches with air cover overhead. But our boarder's presence at dinner each evening was to me like entertaining the personal emissary of the man who was single-handedly held responsible for victory over the Japanese in Burma and partition, the Earl of Mountbatten and last Viceroy of India. As one event follows and fulfills the promise of a preceding one, so in India the Second World War would not have been complete without partition. But what our one-armed border and Mountbatten had to do with the room partition in our home was beyond me. What I knew without question, though, was that partition had come and gone while my mother was confined with me. My conception in Delhi and birth in Karachi framed partition like bookends, as if partition had had some role in my birth, though mother kept insisting that it had nearly killed me. Like the moist, balled-up hankies in her sweaty palms and the smell of fish in Empress Market absorbed by the marble slabs over generations, I absorbed the anxiety of her stories and her life. Time has stood still for me since I met your father in 37, she said. I stopped being myself. I stopped growing then. Being the short woman that she was, I thought that in some roundabout fashion she was explaining her stature to me. She was bitter at life. It had offered her few pleasures. She knew she had reason to feel beaten, but she never conceded defeat. She felt cheated of her father's life that she'd only caught glimpses of while he was alive, before it disappeared. Expectations had taken root in her imagination. Everything since his death had been downhill, an endless decline, a series of events dotting her life and constantly conspiring to destroy whatever she'd managed to construct for herself. It drove her into a restless quest for whatever there existed within each of her children that couldn't be stolen away. She tried to explain to us what that was, but she never uncovered it for herself. She could only point out to us what it was not, and she resurrected her life in her stories every day and night. She brought me into this world just after midnight, and her stories especially caught fire in me after dark. There was always one particular nighttime ritual— Said your prayers? I looked up. Don't make excuses. If it hadn't been for our prayers, you wouldn't have survived partition. Your aunts in England, your brothers, and even that almighty father of yours who doesn't believe in prayer, even he prayed for you. Now it's time you prayed for others, Derek. I lowered myself by the bed. When I return with your Vicks vapor rub, I want to see you finished. 
she returned. Said your prayers? Yes, mother. Who did you pray for? I prayed for father. Well, he of all people needs your prayers. And? Errol and Peter. It's good you should never forget your brothers. And? Aunt Evelyn and Rachel. It's right you remember them. And? Oh, yes, and you, mother. Don't worry about me, Derek. I'm past praying for. But who else? I was lost as I climbed in bed. But who else is there? What about your sister Josephine? But she's right here besides me asleep, and there's so many people to remember. So many people there. Be thankful I don't have you praying for your grandmother and grandfather and your Uncle Dennis. Why not? They're dead and past praying for. Past praying for like you, mother, I asked. Yes, like me, she laughed. Come on, turn over. She rolled me on my back. A part of me died with them, she said. How that could be was difficult to imagine. I would watch her carefully in her unguarded moments to discover for myself what part of her was dead. I thought I held a clue in our one-armed border from the Burma Theatre under Mountbatten, but I saw no dismembered or atrophied limb, and I confused that with the photos in which she decapitated herself at the neck, leaving her headless torso. She seemed so very much alive that it took me years to realize she meant something else. As above the partition, the light spilt over with the whispering of my father and brothers, whispers that clung to the corners like cobwebs. When will your wheezing end? My tight chest loosened beneath her thin fingers. Doesn't this feel better? It's this miserable heat in Karachi. Your wheezing will stop when we get you to England and America. And here you are giving trouble with your prayers. You wouldn't behave like this if you'd experienced what I did as a girl. Her signal for another story of hers. We slept in one half of the large room we called home, with the beds pushed up against one another, where there was always the promise of a story at night to lure me to sleep. As if I needed her voice to more fully open my eyes to the diminishing light, and then later, when exhausted and accustomed to the dark, to more securely shut them. I became so attached to her stories that when I discovered how important it was that I display a healthy appetite, I chose to barter one for the other. To be coaxed into eating, I demanded the stories be read to me while I ate. A simple meal that often took minutes to prepare, often took hours to consume. By day, I insisted on stories read to me from books, but if there was no book available, it was no matter, as I'd correct any errant storyteller, for I knew every storybook tale by heart. But if Mother became errant at night, though I knew every detail of her stories inside out, I never contradicted her. Every variation and nuance simply added to every previous one, a thick accumulation that clung to every crevice of my world. In every crevice of my world at night, Karachi became my vessel. The airport, the railway station, the hills, the Holy Trinity Church, Jinnah Hospital, Clifton Beach, Sandspits, Hawke's Bay, the Arabian Sea, the prison, the Liari River, Gandhi Gardens, and the zoo all became points marking my horizon, delineating the circumference of my known world, points attached by an imaginary thread that wound a path through each of them, a thread that at night would be gathered up and drawn tight to form a diaphanous veil, a single luminous surface, 
each point a fleck of light reflected off the rim, the thin lip of my glass, Karachi at night, into which was poured at dusk each evening the heavy liquid of mother's past that filled every crack and crevice of my world as I'd raise my glass to my lip and sip the nectar. Night became the backdrop. Space collapsed, replaced by fleeting shafts of time, and light turned corners, illuminating the molasses-colored nectar crowded with people from another world. The night shook beneath the trembling weight, vibrating, expanding, and contracting beneath her breath that resurrected stories late into the night as we lay in bed traveling far and wide, back and forth in time, restless. The night air thickened, suffocating me as my passages became restricted, my breathing noisy, heavy, haphazard. Each night she'd end her stories with, Earl, are you asleep? Peter, what about you? She rarely asked after me. It never occurred to her that I might have remained silently awake to catch every last word until one night when I couldn't help laughing and my eavesdropping was exposed. Errol, she said on that particular night, are you asleep? Yes, mother, I'm asleep, my brother replied. Don't be cocky, young man. Have you said your prayers? But mother, you said you're past praying for. Oh, yes, well, you're right, I suppose, she replied, caught off guard. And in that moment I broke out laughing uncontrollably. Laughter that quickly turned to gasps for a breath of air and a mad frantic clutching at my, 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 my God, Derek, what are you doing awake? You'll kill yourself laughing like that. Errol, Peter, Dudley, quick, wake up. Give me a hand. Pull off the sheets. Turn them over. Hand me the Vicks. Boil some water. Say your prayers. And she began massaging me, her palms sweating as her cracked voice broke out in songs of prayer. Derek, never laugh like that again, do you understand? You're asthmatic. That's a luxury you can't afford. And is this all the thanks I get? My children lying awake all night spying on me and laughing? Believe me, my prayers are our last chance. What else do you think will get us out of this damn black hole of Karachi and over to England and America? I'm walking to New Orleans I'm walking to New Orleans I'm gonna need to parachute When I get through walking these blues When I get back to New Orleans I've got my suitcase in my hand I'm leaving here today Yes, I'm going back home to stay Yes, I'm walking to New Orleans That was John Walk reading Escaping Karachi. You know, today there are about 39 million people that live in California. Just about half of them were not even born in California, and then half again of those, almost 9 million, were not even born in the United States. It's always interesting to hear stories like John's about what people have gone through before coming to America. Like in so many other cases, 
there always seem to be a few critical decisions that people make that shape not only their own lives but the lives of their descendants. In this case, what if India and Pakistan hadn't gone through partition? What if Derek's parents had indeed decided to stay in New Delhi? What if because of quotas they couldn't get into the United States? And then there are those parental influences that structure our lives. What if Derek's mom hadn't been so concerned about his health? Would he have survived? And what if she hadn't told him all those stories or used all that Vicks vapor rub on him when he had asthma attacks? Things might certainly have turned out differently. Friends, John's story tonight appeared in the Statesman Festival magazine in Calcutta. An excerpt of it appeared in the Valley Voices section of the Fresno Bee. We certainly want to thank John Walk for his reading tonight, also for the numerous other times he's appeared on our show in the past. Hope he's working on more stories for us for future broadcasts. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for tuning in. If you would like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just go online at kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our author will be Mary Lee Gowland. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read. Mm-hmm.